Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Top 1000 Funds podcast collaboration with the PRI, Sustainability in a Time of Crisis. This new series is brought to you with the support of Rubico, and I'm Amanda White, editor of top1000funds.com. The COVID-19 global health and economic crisis has highlighted the need for leadership and capital to be urgently targeted towards the vulnerabilities in the global economy. The issues of sustainability have never been more important, and it's an essential time for investors to be collaborating for better corporate behaviours and economic outcomes. This series explores these issues, as well as the actions that investors can take to ensure the recovery is a sustainable one. I'm joined today by Chief Executive of the PRI, Fiona Reynolds, and Nigel Topping, who has been appointed by the UK Government as the high-level climate action champion for United Nations Climate Talks, COP26, which has been postponed by a year to the new dates of November 1st to 12th, 2021. We're going to focus today on climate change and how, amongst and despite the short-term focus of this COVID-19 crisis, we can mobilise government, business and investors into action around this important issue of climate change. So I'd like to welcome both of our guests. Most recently, Nigel was CEO of We Mean Business, a coalition of businesses working to accelerate the transition to a zero carbon economy. Prior to that, he was executive director of the Carbon Disclosure Project and has also been a board member of the London Pension Fund Authority. He was appointed by the government to this fantastically named position of champion of COP26 in January this year. And of course, we all know Fiona Reynolds and the great work that she and the PRI are doing to support its signatories and bring our attention to a sustainable recovery. Welcome to you both. Morning, Amanda. Yes, Amanda. So, Nigel, on being appointed to this champion role, you said 2020 is the year for us all to become climate champions and the start of a decade in which we reduce emissions by at least 50%. This will require each one of us pushing our actions to the limit and then taking another step. While 2020 certainly started off that way with the Climate Centre of talks at Davos and had the attention of many public and private investors, but the ambition has been somewhat thwarted by the health and economic crisis induced by COVID-19. So can you tell us a bit about where you stand on that ambition now and what the delay of COP26 in Glasgow has meant for your plans, really how you're feeling about the delay and is having more time actually an opportunity for you? Well, thanks, Amanda. And obviously, these are extraordinary times. Um, and I think I would distinguish between the short-term impact and the long-term impact. I mean, short-term, it's entirely right and understandable that leaders, government at every level and, and investor and business leaders are really are focused on health of employees and citizens and the immediate economic crisis. Um, but I think we're already seeing very strong evidence that the private sector, both investors, and I think the, the work that Fiona's leading is a prime example of that, and the business community, I mean, you see some of the things coming out from Women Business or the Energy Transitions Commission or the German Stiftung Zweigrad, very strong messages from the private sector that the way we build back, the way that we recover from this crisis is going to be absolutely crucial and that we must avoid a framing which says there's a trade-off between a clean recovery and a and an economic recovery, that actually the, actually the only way to recover robustly is to make it a clean recovery. So all the evidence that I see from the private sector and, and from, uh, you know, from city leaders as well, um, and, you know, and we'll talk later about the Race to Zero launch we've just had, um, is that there's, if anything, a growing resolve 
to make sure that we accelerate the transition to the clean and resilient economy that we know we all need and that we know macroeconomically is a, is a far better path. So, so I guess for me, there's a there's, a, there's, there's, of course, there's an interruption in a, in a, around the plans, but we now have clarity of the date for COP. It'll be 1st to 12th November 2021. And so actually that does give us more time to get organized and to raise ambition as businesses, investors, cities, and states and regions. And that will help encourage countries to raise their own plans by the time we get to Glasgow. So I guess all in all, I'm not, and of course, enjoying the reason for the delay, but feeling like we do have more time to get organised and that is an opportunity to overall raise ambition. Nigel, last year in a TED Talk, uh, March 2019, before you were appointed to this position, uh, you said in a TED Talk that the Paris Climate Agreement was the greatest ever treaty in the history of civilization. And COP26 obviously is also an important meeting. It marks the fifth anniversary of that Paris Agreement and is said to be a coming together to ratchet up that ambition that you're talking about, as well as sort out the gap between ambition and reality. Can you tell us a bit about the key areas of focus for the meeting? Is it innovation around clean energy systems, fleshing out of the net zero commitments, working on this net part of the net zero bid or all of those things, none of those things? What are you looking at? Yeah, I think I think the full quote probably said something more like that um, it, it could be the greatest ever treaty in the history of civilization if we implement it. So, because I think it is the boldest ever treaty. Every single country in the world, you know, committing to net zero basically means a complete restructuring of the energy nexus, which underpins our economic um, basis of civilization. So it's a complete transformation of the socioeconomic basis of living together on the planet. So it's a huge deal. Uh, the, the question is, if we pull it off, and in a way, that's the real focus for Glasgow. That's why it's so important. It's because it is the fifth anniversary. And as you know, the Paris Agreement has a five-year ratchet mechanism built in. So Glasgow really is the first test of whether or not the Paris Agreement will work. We think it is working. It's already evidenced, and you can see that in the private sector ratcheting ambition um, in an expectation. And I hope Fiona will talk a bit about some of the work PRI have been doing on the inevitable policy response, which I think is a brilliant manifestation of that realization that this transition is inevitable. So the, so the test in Glasgow will really be around three or four things. What The primary one, I think, will be, is there real evidence of a significant increase in ambition around the world from countries, from investors, from businesses, and from local government as well, um, so that we can really see the evidence of a ratchet? The, there, there are other things that are really important as well. There are still some elements of the Paris rulebook that need to be negotiated, notably around um, international carbon markets. Those are really important as a test of our ability multilaterally to agree the rules. And, and then the emphasis on adaptation is also really important. So it's not just about reducing emissions. It's also about making sure we have clear plans to support the most vulnerable. And that's another way in which I think COVID has really highlighted the importance of addressing fragility of our systems and investing in adaptation as well as mitigation. So it's a basket of things, but overall, the test will be, do we agree that we've significantly moved forward since Paris as a result of the first five-year ratchet, or I guess now a six-year ratchet by accident? So Fiona, as Nigel mentioned, you've released the inevitable policy response paper, which by definition means you're anticipating more policy changes from governments with regard to climate change. And this paper helps investors position portfolios for this inevitability. Can you run us through that IPR 
paper and first your thinking on the policy responses and how you're advising investors position their portfolios accordingly. Sure. Thanks, Amanda. Um, first of all, I'd say that I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, for the PRI, we really support the move of COP26 for the 12 months. I, I do see it very much as an opportunity and that we can have 12 more months to really make sure that we're uh, moving the private sector forward and have time to engage with governments as well. Of course, we're really excited that it's here in the UK where we're headquartered and uh, that Nigel has been appointed as the COP champion as well to work with all the non-state actors and, you know, we're working closely with him with the investment community. But I think that everyone would agree that in the main, government action to tackle climate change has so far been really highly insufficient to achieve the commitments made under the Paris Agreement, which nearly every country in the world has signed on to. And because of this, we believe that financial markets' default assumption appears to be that no further climate-related policies are coming in the near term. Yet as the realities of climate change become increasingly more apparent, it's inevitable that governments will be forced to act more decisively than they have so far. And we're starting to see that happen. So the EU has set out the Green New Deal and it's leading the way on integrating sustainability into the heart of the financial system. The UK has set a net zero target for 2050. So is Canada, Norway, Denmark, and the list of countries is growing. But achieving net zero targets don't magically happen. The only way that governments can achieve them is to change policy settings. For example, they need to set a date for banning things like the internal combustion engine, as a number of countries, including the UK, already have. So the question for investors now is not if governments will act, but when they'll do so and what policies will they use and where will the impact be felt for an investor on their portfolios. So the inevitable policy response or IPR project really forecasts a response. We we really see all of this happening around 2025 that will be forceful, abrupt and disorderly because of the delay in taking action on climate change. So the longer that governments delay acting, the bigger the impact of policy reform will have to be. And it can't be put off forever. People are demanding change. They see the physical impacts. They see the fires, the floods, the noise that will only get louder and the science is only getting better and the timeline's getting shorter. So IPR has a policy a scenario forecast which lays out the policies that are likely to be implemented up to 2050 and it quantifies the impact of this uh, response on the real economy and on financial markets and across asset classes. So I think the forecast is really a unique tool for investors to navigate what is really a complex involving policy and regulatory landscape to enhance portfolio resilience and to inform strategic asset allocation. It also takes into consideration the Paris Agreement and Nigel already mentioned the ratchet mechanism that's there. So every five years, the Paris Agreement 
requires countries to submit further advances in their climate pledges. So in 2023, there'll be a global stock take of where we're at and what will happen is we already know that we won't be anywhere near that we're, where we're supposed to be. And then 2025, countries are, need to submit another round, their third round of pledges. And I think at that stage, we will see that we're far away from where we need to be and the timeline shorter. So we see the policy levers that governments are going to use are around things like coal phase out. So the UK, for example, is committed to phase out coal by 2025. A phase out of the internal combustion engine, so dates for electric vehicles, carbon pricing at a meaningful price, that there will be more, more innovation around carbon capture and storage, uh, zero carbon power, so hydro, wind, solar, nuclear in some countries, requirements for energy efficiency, dates and targets around homes and buildings, that there'll be more policy around land use and nature-based solutions, reforestation, et cetera, and then agricultural practices. And we go into a lot of detail about these issues and policy settings within the work. And again, getting down into that portfolio level across our asset classes. But the message at the end of the day for investors is really that you've got to act now you're going to pay the price later. And there's a huge amount of economic modelling that sits behind it. And I really encourage all investors to engage with the work. And obviously, Fiona, that paper is available on your website and we'll also make it available to listeners of this podcast. Nigel, do you want to make any comments here about what you're seeing from governments and, and your expectation around policy responses? Well, I mean, I think Fiona and I are very aligned on this. I think the main thing I would say is that we often, we collectively as humans, right, cognitively often fall into the trap of assuming that the future is um, a sort of linear incremental extrapolation of the past. Um, and so what I think is really powerful about the IPR is it, it highlights the fact that we know that all major industrial transitions do not happen in that way. They happen exponentially and then flatten out what we call an S-curve. So, and I think you can see that happening now if you just have a bit of a historical sensitivity. And I'll take the combustion engine phase out that Fiona referenced as one of the big areas. When we all went home after Paris sort of in January 2016, most people thought we'd still be building and selling combustion engine cars into the 2060s or 2070s. That's certainly what the IEA was telling everybody. A couple of years later, Countries like France and the UK put a 2040 um, end date on cars. Now we're seeing the Netherlands um, say 2030, UK pulling forward possibly to 2032, and then even a manufacturer like Daimler, the biggest truck manufacturer in the world, saying they'll be net zero in major markets by 2039. So what was thought impossible three or four years ago is becoming normal. In other words, the, the future's coming at us about 40 years faster than people thought was possible three or four years ago. So that's, that's real evidence of exponential change starting to pick up pace. And, and policymakers have to respond to that. I mean, they're nervous of leading the way, but as that momentum builds, I think we'll see more and more jurisdictions follow that because it becomes a competitiveness issue. And I think the poster child for getting it wrong at the moment is the USA, where Detroit is facing... Um, I think Armageddon, because the US administration is actually effectively forcing Detroit to stay in the fossil fuel age when Europe and China, the other two big markets in the world, are accelerating towards the clean mobility age. So just as Detroit got the response 
to the first oil crisis in the 70s wrong and continue to build big gas guzzlers and lost market share to European and Asian car manufacturers. I fear Detroit could be going down the, the second um, step of its demise by getting this policy response wrong as well. So, of course, governments are a, a kind of one actor in, in the whole um, equation and one key part of the plan around COP26 was to build coalitions of state and, and non-state actors to to spur sector-specific ambition and innovation. Can you tell us, Nigel, a little bit about the plan for this collective action and how you're going to yeah. bring together all of those parties? Yeah, I mean, Fiona mentioned that, you know, that for example, we have a powering past coal alliance, which is countries, cities and companies. So the, the basic approach that we take is to think of all of these sectors as systems with many actors and many levers. So we have civil society, investors, cities, employees, trade unions, trade bodies, all the different actors along the value chain. And if you look at all of those and start thinking about all the different levers people can pull, um, and then you end up with a, a pathway to zero. So again, if we stick to the combustion engine, we need investors to allocate capital. We need cities like Paris to ban combustion engines from the city centre. We need um, national governments to invest in charging infrastructure. We need fleet owners like Lease Plan, nearly 2 million vehicles committed to all being electric by 2030. And we need the vehicle manufacturers, as I mentioned, is committed to being net zero 2039. So then once we have the first movers on all of those, then we get more cities, more investors, more governments. So that's the idea is to make that a, um, an unstoppable flywheel of momentum so that by the time we get to Glasgow, really, if you're not on that pathway and you have anything to do with the internal combustion engine, you're actually choosing to lose because you cannot catch up with an exponential if you're three or four years behind it. It just, it just disappears into the distance. There's a big learning effect. And so it's really important that everybody from investors to businesses to mayors to ministers realize how fast industrial transformation happens and gets on the exponential curve before it's too late to catch up. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? You wouldn't want to fight that force. Um, Fiona, this sort of notion of collective action is something you've been talking a lot about in recent months um, and something the PRI has also been calling for, that investors will be more powerful if they act collectively. Can you speak specifically about climate action and what collaboration you've seen from investors and, and really what you'd like to see? Yeah, well, I mean, PRI itself is all built on collective action. And I think that there is a growing realisation from more and more investors around the world that it's very difficult for one investor, no matter how large you are, to have influence on your own. Uh, so you really need to come together if you want to bring about systemic change and change within a sector, change within the world, really. You can't do it on, on your own. So I think that collective action is just continuing to grow and be much more um, professional and, and organised. So I was talking about IPR before and, you know, that work we did with Vivid Economics and Energy Transition Advisors to also bring, like, lots of different expertise into the work that we were doing to take it to another level. Then I think some good things that we're involved with in the industry, I'd say one of the, uh, one of the first examples is Climate Action 100 Plus. And that works because of the scale and that it's got clear messages. So there's 450 investors now across the globe who represent 40 trillion in assets under management. 
And the focus is very clearly on the 100 largest emitters in the world. Three key asks, set an emissions reduction target in line with Paris. As investors, we want to understand the governance arrangements in place with your board and how they are thinking about climate change and the transition to a low carbon economy. And we want you to report to us in line with TCFD so that we've got good information. And so in this way, you've got all of these investors going with the same ask, which is important because otherwise companies will say to you, well, this, this um, investor comes along and they're asking for X and this one comes along and they want A and this one comes along and they want C. What do you all actually want? Because you're not aligned. And that makes it harder for them. And I think that Climate Action 100 Plus, while I'm the first person to say we've got a still a lot of work to do, has had a huge impact and is getting results. So if we look around the world, you know, very large companies like Shell, Total, BP, etc., have set targets as a direct result of this engagement. Again, there's much more to be done. And I would also acknowledge that there's a big transatlantic divide. So we're getting much more movement in some parts of the world, in Europe, from corporations than we are, for example, in the United States. So we haven't had a great success with Exxon or Chevron. But I think large coalitions with focused agendas with reasonable asks of companies work. And the other that we're involved in as well is the Asset Owner Alliance. So a coalition of large asset owners, some of the largest asset owners in the world, who are not just asking for companies to set an emissions reduction target, they are setting ones themselves. They're committing to net zero by 2050 across their entire portfolio. They're currently working on how you set those targets and what are the near-term targets so you don't just set something for 2050. What, do, what are your targets along the way and how do you report against them? What are the metrics? And I think this, is a, this will be also a very uh, growing and influential group of asset owners because obviously the asset owners can only change their emissions reductions trajectory by the things that they invest in, so how they influence companies, the things they don't invest in, and the new technologies and the energy sources of the future that they invest in. So all of these things will significantly move the market and it sends strong signals to companies, it sends strong signals to government that investors are taking climate change seriously, which is important. You mentioned there, Fiona, the TCFD-based indicators and, and you've actually made, at the PRI, you've made reporting against those mandatory for signatories. Um, how's that going and what is, what, is, what is it revealed? And I'm interested in this kind of mandatory nature of it and what people think yeah, about well, that. We well, we really see TCFD as the best framework available to look at climate risk really in a holistic way. So you're going from strategy through to metrics. So how do you consider the issue through to how do you measure progress and outcomes? And we've been heavily involved in the development of the framework. Um, I think it's really important also that the TCFD is a framework that was developed by the industry for the industry. So all PRI signatories must report on an annual basis on their responsible investment activities against a set of indicators. And two years ago, we introduced TCFD reporting on an optional basis. And this last year of reporting was the first time that we made it mandatory to report. So um, 
reporting didn't close off that long ago, so we're still going through the analysis of what's happening with the TCFD reporting, what's happened now that we've made it mandatory. But I have to say, if, I, if we think about the reporting from the last two years, although people reported, the quality of the reporting wasn't very high. So, but I think that was okay in the beginning because what we were trying to do is get, pe get people used to using the framework and understanding what were the kind of questions they had to ask and uh, how will they get this information and how do they set that up in their own organisation. We would really like to see, though, and I hope what I can report out of this out of this year's reporting is that we have seen an improvement in the quality of the reporting. The PRI reporting, though, doesn't replace the need to do, you know, a detailed TCFD report for investors. Um, we've just integrated the governance and strategy metrics at this this stage. We haven't uh, we haven't sort of gone further with the strategy, with the with the metrics and targets, that will come later. Um, but yeah, so I still I still think that there's a long way to go on TCFD reporting. And I think there's a long way to go as well from what we're seeing, that for investors to actually use corporates TCFD reporting, I think there could be more work done there as well. But it's still evolving. Nigel, I'm interested in in your view of what investors can do uh, to help. You were a board member of the London Pension Fund Authority from 2017 to 2020, and there's been some noticeable leadership among pension funds. LPFA is one of them, and Brunel uh, is a standout as well, for example. But, uh, you know, what do you think is the most important thing that investors can do to play a role here? And maybe we can also sort of bring this conversation to be talking about your recently launched Race to Zero and, and what asset owners and asset managers can do to get involved in that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, well, I think Fiona's actually pretty much laid out what, um, what what investors can do and what responsible investors, and I mean, I'm, th I'm thinking, of course, particularly with the, with the, from the perspective of having been a board member of a public pension fund, that, you know, responsible means responsible to the members who uh, who are going to be, expecting to draw their pension in 50, 60 years' time if they're young firemen or young teachers. Right? Um, so I think the number one thing is to take this really seriously as a financial issue, not to end up in a boardroom discussion which is framed as though climate change is a, an ethical issue only or an environmental issue only. It's first and foremost a financial issue. Just And if people don't believe that, just read some of the analysis that PRI do, listen to some of the speeches from Mark Carney. That's the number one hurdle is old school board members who still frame this as a, oh, well, if we're going to go green, we're going to have to sacrifice some financial returns. That's just not true. The jury's totally come to a conclusion on that. There's so much evidence of that. So there's a, make sure that it's very clearly framed as a long-term financial performance issue. That's the number one thing. And then you have to get to, well, we better, we've got to commit to net zero. The evidence for that as being the landing zone is inexorable. The science is so overwhelming. You know, I think of this as from a risk management point of view. If you think of your normal audit and risk committee, you look at risk events on two dimensions, the likelihood of an event and the impact of an event. So let's take the event as a 1.5 degree global warming. 
Every year, the likelihood's gone up. We know that because the policy response has so far been inadequate. That's why we think there's likely to be a correction. But also, every time the scientists assess the impact of that risk, so the International Panel on Climate Change, who every few years publish very detailed reports, they'll be publishing their sixth report. The first of those are now going to come out next year before the COP. Every single time they've assessed the risk, it goes up because our understandings of impact improve. And scientists are trained to be cautious and not to overstate. So you can expect the assessed risk of a 1.5 degrees to go up again next year. So if you're a fiduciary, you're sitting on a complete failure of risk management with the likelihood and the impact of the risk both going up bottom left to top right. So committing to net zero is an absolute fiduciary requirement. Um, in my opinion, and I think increasingly in legal opinion and in, in the opinions of, of, of members of pension funds. And that, of course, will then cascade to the, the asset managers. I think the second thing, is, as Fiona says, is then make sure you've got a detailed plan of what you're doing to be on that trajectory in the next five years. You don't have to get to net zero in the next five years, but we know we've got to at least halve emissions in the next 10. And then, of course, T TCFD, transparency. And the other real main thing is to very clearly tell the companies in your portfolio that you expect them to commit to net zero, to be on that trajectory, and that there will be consequences ultimately. So I think within within the London Pension Fund, you know, we, we, we took engagement really seriously, but we like to think that engagement has to have consequences. So if a company is demonstrably not taking seriously the expectations that they adjust their plans in line with Paris, then they have no place in the portfolio ultimately. They're just representing too much risk. So I think being really clear about your own commitment to the future, short-term plans, and then making sure that all the companies in your portfolio know that they expect consequences if they don't get aligned with that in the short term. So we've just launched the Race to Zero, which is, if you like, the umbrella campaign to get 10 times as many um, non-state actors, which is what the UN system calls um, businesses, investors, cities, states and regions who don't have a legal seat at the table in the UN climate negotiations, but have really important real economy acts. So we just launched that, um, really encouraged by the, um, the, the the launch and the growth of the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance, um, and also growing numbers of asset managers who are setting their own Net Zero science-based targets to demonstrate to the asset owners that they are, um, if you like, ahead of the game and recognize that that pressure is coming down the pipe for them. I mean, if, a net, if an asset owner is committed to Net Zero, every asset manager um, working uh, on a mandate for those asset owners must surely be looking at when they're going to make that commitment because it's only a matter of time before it comes a, a, a requirement within the mandate. And you mentioned there Mark Carney, um, who is the advisor to the Prime Minister on COP26 finance, so I'm sure you're working closely with him, but he's been quoted as saying the transition to net zero is creating the greatest commercial opportunity of our time. That's a quote that's pretty hard to ignore if you're an investor, I would have thought, but... Um, uh, just want to turn to that. Uh, you mentioned corporate commitments to net zero and investors asking that question. Um, there's been some recent corporate commitments. Do both of you have a view on what a good commitment looks like and from an investor point of view, what they should be pushing for in terms of what what that looks like from a, a, a sort of implementation point of view? Well, from the from the corporate point of view, the gold standard is something called the Science Based Targets Initiative, which has um, that's a that's an initiative run by the World Resource Institute, um, CDP, who we mentioned, and uh, WWF and the Global Compact, that has very rigorous methodological um, approaches to companies in different sectors setting um, uh, uh, a decarbonisation target in line with the science. 
So that's the gold standard. Not some of the recent announcements um, don't follow that. There are that, that's still work in development. I mean, there is not a methodology for the oil and gas sector yet. I think that will be launched towards the end of the year. So we don't have a methodology to test the oil and gas commitments. I think most of us think that they're probably not fully science-based. Um, I think Fiona might know more than me about the Transition Pathways Initiative, which has recently assessed those oil um, commitments and, and concluded that they're not yet Paris aligned. Um, I think, for example, BP's commitment, um, I mean, I think by their own admission that it's short on detail and when they have their investor day in September, I think we'll all be looking at how are they tilting their investments away from increasing upstream investments in new fossil fuel reserves? And like just like um, Total recently announced um, 1.5 billion in, in, in offshore wind, so moving away from fossil exploration to, to, to clean production and, uh, and transmission. So I think in, for most sectors, there's a gold standard science-based targets and a methodology. Um, and, and for the sectors that don't yet have a methodology, that will be coming out in the next, um, certainly the next 12 months, I think. Fiona, any comments there on, 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 from your point of view, what good commitments look like? Well, I agree with um, Nigel completely on the science-based targets. Just because he was talking about the oil and gas sector, though, if we look at that sector, and obviously it's an extremely important sector if we're going to tackle emissions reduction and ultimately tackle climate change. So I, I quite like the approach of a company of some companies, particularly company, companies like Shell, because they've taken a whole business and operations approach down to sectors that they supply. So, um, you know, if they supply product to the aviation sector, then they need to work with that sector as well on how it gets to net zero, because they can't, they recognise that they can't get to net zero unless the entire operations and the entire value chain of how they operate, that, that they work with those. And so I think it's just got this good cascading flow-on effect and it's very holistic for an oil and gas major. Um, as Nigel mentioned, there still has to be uh, a better ways of measuring and, and metrics, but I feel that when we engage with these kinds of companies that there's leadership at the top who strongly believe that this is the way their business needs to go and are prepared to get around a table and work with um, business companies, uh, bringing that together with investors, with governments as well. So I think you know I feel, really feel that it's more than lip service. That it's um, there's a lot of there's a lot of detail that's going into it and a lot of thought. And we'll put all of that information uh, available to our listeners about the race to zero as well, Nigel. So um, hopefully you'll you'll get some uh, more take up uh, after people have listened to this. But rather big question, really, to finish on to both of you, as we emerge from this COVID nineteen crisis, you know, from a health and economic point of view, what are your views on how we can put green jobs at the centre of the recovery? You know, Nick Stern famously has said and keeps repeating that tackling climate change is the growth story of the 21st century. So, so the first thing would be to not make it a green versus economic. Just as I was saying in the boardroom of invest uh, of pension funds, not to make, not to not to fall into the logical trap of assuming there's a trade-off here. Um, you know, we know that the future is 
is going to be clean because the science and the policy and the technology and the frustration and anger on the streets are all pointing in that happening. So that's the first thing is to not make not, not fall into the trap of thinking it's a trade-off. Um, the, the, the second thing is to, is to make sure that COVID recovery packages are tilting the playing field towards the future. There is a risk politically that people try and invest in, in dying um, sectors and dying technologies because they have current employment, but, they, but they're dying. They won't have future employment. We see the folly of that in America, for example, with Trump um, so trying to save coal, but coal-fired power plants have been shutting just as fast under Trump as Obama because the economics is, is over for coal-fired power plants. So I think the, the kind of things that we need to see in the COVID response are very clear end dates. You, um, Fiona mentioned the 2025 end date for coal in the UK. Actually, the UK government's brought that forward to 2024 now, but I think it's now 50 days that we haven't burnt any coal. So markets respond really well to clarity. You know, um, ben Van Buren from Shell, which is talking about Shell, publicly said he'd welcome a com combustion engine ban 10 years earlier than the current 2040. Why? Because it gives him clarity. He doesn't have to invest into policy uncertainty because he knows that that's going to happen in the, in the 2030. So if the government says it will be 2030, then it reduces investment risk. In, in some other sectors, there's different policy needs, like um, say the hydrogen economy or decarbonizing steel and cement. We're at an earlier stage, so we need maybe government support in early stage R&D. Uh, then I think we need to see some intelligent long-term strings attached, again, to tilt the recovery towards future technology. So in the French have interesting example. They've mandated um, for the, in the Air France bailout some interesting things like a, a mandatory reduction in emissions per passenger kilometer, a mandatory uh, non-compete with um, short distance um, uh, train travel, um, which is clean, um, but also very interestingly, a mandatory sustainable aviation fuel um, element of the fuel mix. Currently, sustainable aviation fuel, so the zero carbon fuel that we need to transition to, is only 0.01% of the mix globally. So the French have said it's got to be 2% for Air France by 2025. So within five years, they have to go 200x. That's the kind of exponential change, which we, if we saw everywhere around the world, would put us on track to 10 to 20% by 2030, and then 100% in the early 2040s. Um, so those kind of policy measures now, which, which in many ways are in line with some of the um, inevitable policy response um, projections, which, uh, which Fiona's talked about. Fiona, I know this is a, one of your favourite subjects. It, it is. I feel like I, that all I do is talk about this every day on, on something. I was doing something with the Swedish finance minister yesterday. I had to say that um, I wish that there was more finance ministers like him around the world who kind of totally gets it and is responding. But, I mean, obviously governments are going to going to be in huge debt after this um, whole COVID-19 situation. And, you know, what we want to see is really a sustainable, inclusive and green recovery and that we emerge with an economy that's really fit for the 21st century. So none of this let's get back to normal stuff that people are talking about because normal wasn't really very good from an economic and planet point of view. We need to, we need to do something that's much better. So, um, you know, governments need to create jobs. Look how many people are unemployed around the world. And that's just at the moment. Once the government bailout packages and the furloughing schemes, et cetera, finish, 
that that unemployment rate is just going to go through the roof. They need to raise revenue and I think they need to accelerate the climate transition. So what we've been saying is that we need a recovery that really prioritises human relief and job creation without locking in high carbon pathways. So recovery plans that should create jobs across society that match investments in the net zero emissions energy, industrial, building and transportation system and include climate resilience measures that we need sustainable infrastructure. So if governments have to spend money and stimulate the economy, spending on infrastructure is a good idea, but that we need to have public-private partnerships or we need private investment. So what is really a pipeline of investable and bankable projects that, you know, are investment-ready, that they can actually invest in? And that would create jobs as well as doing much-needed nation-building and things that need to be done in countries. So really focus on projects that create jobs in the green economy and accelerate green projects. So retrofitting buildings, which needs to be done. Governments could say, like, let's go and retrofit all of our own um, buildings. Uh, Bring in energy efficiency measures for homes and buildings across the country. Nature-based solutions, you know, reforestation. All of these things will create jobs. And we need to accelerate the recovery by facilitating fresh investments in clean energy because they can be deployed much faster than really the incumbent carbon-intensive industries. But one of the things that I would say is we have to make sure that these are good jobs because we see what's happening around the world with inequality, what's happened because we've allowed jobs to be, you know, outsourced, that people don't get paid living wages, etc. So I think we need to do better when we create these green jobs. And the other thing I want to see, though, is I don't, I think that it's about job creation, but we need to address other things. So I don't think any of those bailouts should be to companies or to sectors should be condition-free, and Nigel already mentioned what, you know, France is doing with Air France, and I think things like that are really important. And as well as those accelerating green issues, I think some of the conditions should be about jobs and about job retention and how you're keeping employees. And I also want to see really governments tackle the whole issue of tax. So, um, you know, why why would we want to bail out companies who actually pay no tax in our country. So I think we could do better about saying no bailouts for companies who who are set up in tax havens, that we need much better tax reporting, country by country reporting, and that it's enforced. And I think that would help on the revenue side. And I just want to end by saying, I suppose, on this issue that we we cannot see what happened after the global financial crisis. So in many countries, including here in the UK, what happened to to be able to recover was that austerity measures were brought in and they were very harsh and they have just seen the rise of inequality in this country and in many others, including in the United States. And I think we're seeing some of the results of that playing out at the moment. So we need to think smarter, create jobs. I also think that you know, 
we have a perfect business plan for the world and it's the sustainable development goals. And we need to take that plan and we need to implement it. Like if you're running a business, here's a plan. How do I put it in place? Here's the strategy. Here's the roadmap. What am I going to do? So that's what I would like to see uh, governments do. And I think that corporates in the private sector would get behind governments who have a strong and clear plan and set out a clear pathway because then they know what they're doing with their investment dollars. Very clear, Fiona. Thank you. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with both of you. I'd like to once again thank Rubico for their support of this series and for the PRI and partnering with us on this project. Nigel, very best of luck over the next 17 months as you're organising COP26. Thank you both very much for your time and please take care. Yeah, thanks. Bye, Fiona. <laughs>